the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at at The Dan Proft Show and at Dan Proft on Twitter. Uh, Same thing, Dan Proft Show on Facebook as well. Thank you so much for joining us for another installment. And uh, Michael Bloomberg, you know, I've said on this show before that sometimes there's not enough money in the world to sell manure-smelling air freshener, and that's what I think Michael Bloomberg's $400 million and counting has tried to do. But in this field, it doesn't mean that I guess uh, anything is unreachable uh, if it comes down to Caesar Mike and Bolshevik Bernie. Uh, so interesting over the weekend, uh, Matt Drudge, the Drudge Report folks must like Bloomberg because that's the only way they could have uh, suborned the blaring headline that Bloomberg is considering Hillary Clinton as his running mate. And CNBC was smart enough to cite Matt Drudge. We don't want to own that. You own it. Drudge and the Drudge Report, too sophisticated to go for that feint. An obvious feint by Bloomberg, one for second wave P hat wearers, which is about the only constituency Hillary Clinton still has. And you got a Bloomberg trying to stitch together a constituency in the Democrat primary. And number two, to run interference for this Washington Post story on Sunday that uh, uh, presented a resurfaced copy of uh, this uh, this wit and wisdom potent potables of from Michael Bloomberg from some three decades ago that was supposedly a quote unquote gag gift from his employees at a birthday party when he, you know, was at the tender age of 75 or something, however old he was in 1990. Um, so this has been uh, an issue in campaigns when he ran for mayor of New York City, but he's not running for mayor of New York City anymore. He's not running in the time in which he ran for mayor of New York City, in which he ran as a Republican. He's running in 2020 in the identitarian primary. And so the comments he made alleged that are ascribed to him, in in addition to, by the way, they ring true, because in addition to uh, sort of generic apologies he's made about uh, boorish comments about and to women, uh, the refusal to pierce non-disclosure agreements with related with uh, relation to sexual harassment suits that have been filed by women who worked at Bloomberg News. And I'm not making more of it than there is. I'm just pointing out they exist in a in a company with tens of thousands of employees. You're going to have moments. And that doesn't mean that Bloomberg was a guilty party or was uh, in any way condoning anything, any you know bad acts by any employee. So you know, it's always complicated in a corporate setting. I'll give him the consideration that the left would never give a conservative business uh, business person who was running. Um, but nonetheless, uh, can he survive a Democrat primary with these videos that keep surfacing of him uh, 
speaking like the elitist he is, you know, having little time for the hoi polloi, uh, talking about throwing black kids up against the up against the wall and rousting them in terms of defending his stop and frisk policy a few years ago. And then uh, some of these comments in this, uh, again, quote, unquote, uh, the, uh, the, 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 you know, definitive uh, Paul Richards Almanac for uh, elitism and misogyny, uh, care of Caesar Mike, for example, on death and taxes, the only liberal I trust is a rich old liberal. Why? Because they're old enough to understand what they're saying and they're rich enough to pay for what they're saying. Well, it doesn't offend me, but well, uh, on marriage. Uh, whenever my wife catches me eyeing some broad, she's very careful to turn to me and say, that's the most expensive piece of ass in the world. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. He's doing like he's Mike Bloomberg does Larry the Cable Guy. Uh, on women, here's an example of where we're getting a little bit closer to home. If women wanted to be appreciated for their brains, they go to the library instead of Bloomingdale's. Michael Bloomberg on women. Uh, Michael Bloomberg on the uh, vaunted royal family. Now, this is... A generation ago, but nonetheless, a couple of generations ago. The royal family, what a bunch of misfits. A gay, an architect, that horsey-faced lesbian, and a kid who gave up Ku Stark for some fat broad. Uh, okay. He also um, is uh, very fond of uh, sort of juvenile uses of uh, the, well, B-jobs. Can I say that? I just did. On computers, you know why computers will never take the place of people? Because a computer would say that the sex of a person giving you a B-job doesn't matter. On the Bloomberg model, the Bloomberg product, it will do everything, including giving you a B-job. I guess that puts a lot of you girls out of business. Those are the sort of comments that I think he's apologizing for when he apologizes generically. And also this, this may be even more offensive, despite the Me Too era, than all the B-job stuff. Bloomberg on capitalism. I believe in the capitalist system and free enterprise. The only exception to capitalism is 8th Avenue, where people pay for what they could get for free. Oh, boy. For the same reason you want to sell 200 shares of stock for twice what you paid, we're in the business to make money. Now, that is truly an affront to the modern Democrat Party. But the question about some of the alleged intemperate remarks Bloomberg has made about and to women Kellyanne Conway was on with Chris Wallace yesterday, and uh, she addressed those comments, suggesting even worse than Access Hollywood. Is this any worse than the Access Hollywood tapes? It's far worse. Oh, my goodness, it's far worse. And by the way, that was fully litigated. That happened on October 7th. He won a month later. And 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 that doesn't mean mean it's not an issue. No, here's... If you're going to do that, you know what, I'll take that on any time. I'll take a leave of absence from the White House and talk all day long about that stuff. Let me tell you something. The way Michael Bloomberg treated employees, female employees, who were under his wing, who were relying on him for their for their livelihood, for their health benefits, for their 401ks, to have created that kind of culture, that, that unsafe workplace, to feel that you're being harassed because of your gender, uh, that is problematic, and I think you're going to hear more of it. The other thing is, I don't understand how the Democratic Party is going to 
sit back and take it. Is it really worth it to this Democratic Party in the age of the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter? You had the first African-American president. You have completely squeezed out and spat out the candidates of color this time, Cory Booker, uh, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris. They're out of the race. You're left, with, you're left with a bunch of white people, old white people at that, with the exception of your next guest, Mayor Buttigieg. And, and you're going to go backwards because Michael Bloomberg will spend money and will take and will insult Donald Trump? Yeah, if the price is right. I mean, isn't that what we understand from Harvey Weinstein and so many other examples? If the price is right, you know, we'll walk. If it makes sense electorally because our real interest is, po- is power, we're not bounded by our own hypocrisy. In fact, hypocrisy is part of our privilege. We have the right to be hypocritical because we are the enlightened. That's certainly the Bloomberg attitude. You know, who's talk about promiscuity. He's been a member of uh, every known political affiliation in the land. But Bloomberg has identitarian responses to all of these things as well. So I don't want to, you know, I'm not necessarily buying into the whole Kellyanne Conway case here with respect to Bloomberg. Seems to me a bit overstated, but I understand what she's trying to do. Muddy the waters a little bit, create some identitarian problems for him. But again, for the women who have... uh, sexual harassment suits and settlements with NDAs. There are these women who appeared in this Bloomberg commercial. Working with Mike Bloomberg was one of the most empowering experiences that I've had. It's important to talk to the people who know him personally. I've worked for him for eight years in City Hall. I've been working for Bloomberg for 27 years. 25 years. Almost 30 years. There's nobody that I respect more and felt more respected by. Mike believes Excellence is not defined by gender. Mike builds a culture that advances women. He's the first woman ever appointed to be counsel to the mayor in history of city government. I always knew that he had my back. As a foster parent of 20 kids, there's times where you need flexibility with your schedule, and Mike was always supportive of that. He was raised by an extraordinary woman. He is the brother to an extraordinary woman, and he is the father to two extraordinary women. Mike supports women, he promotes women, and he respects women. There you go. So there's checking the women box. He's got binders full of women, to borrow a phrase. huh? What about on the uh, the race matter? He's got a hustle for that, too. Race and immigration, black and brown people. Bloomberg's on your side. Americans have roots in every corner of the world, but all of us share a common ancestor. Her name is Liberty. She doesn't ask how we worship or what languages we speak. She asks us to dream. Generations of immigrants have answered her call. My grandparents did. Maybe yours did, too, or your parents, or you. President Trump has turned his back on Lady Liberty and on the values that make America a beacon of hope for people around the world. We can't accept that. It's time for change. I'll end President Trump's cruel and un-American separation of families. You know, he goes into the whole children in cages riff in addition to that. So, I mean, can Bloomberg get away with uh, saying one thing and doing another? saying something different than he was saying just a few moments ago. Mm. For uh, the right amount of cash and prizes and distribution of political power, possibly. This is the damn prop show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, knitting, yes, knitting brought our next guest to a Trump rally in New Hampshire in advance of the uh, New Hampshire primary last week. And uh, people uh, underestimate how political knitting is. I think we learned a little bit how political it could be, the uh, literally the sewing circles, when uh, that Ravelry.com put a ban on any uh, Trump-related communications in uh, among knitters. Yeah, we talked about it. I guess it depends on what your colleagues are talking about. Dr. Carolyn Borsenko writes, many knitters are active in social justice communities, love to discuss the revolutionary role knitters have played in our culture. Don't be fooled by their placid exterior. Uh, she, uh, Dr. Borsenko, also a 20-year Democrat, and after the Trump rally she attended in New Hampshire, she moved from registered Democrat to GDI. She's an independent now. So what happened? From knitting to a Trump rally to moving to an independent, let's ask her. Dr. Carolyn Borsenko is a organizational psychologist, consultant, executive coach, and the creator and owner of Zen Workplace in her column at medium.com. After attending a Trump rally, I realized Democrats are not ready for 2020. Dr. Borsenko, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, uh, you were you were a uh, Hillary Clinton voter in 2016 and basically uh, found, maybe still find in some respects, Trump detestable. Nevertheless, you had a bit of a moment of intellectual curiosity that led you all the way to a Trump rally in New Hampshire. You know, explain that and explain what your perceptions were going in versus what you experienced coming out. Yeah, well, even to back up a little bit, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016, oh, okay, and okay. I kind of plugged my nose and voted for Hillary. (laughs) Um, But no, I think, you know, after I witnessed the vitriol in the knitting community, and it's still going on, I'm still getting attacked today for all this stuff, um, that uh, it really made me question who I aligned myself politically with. And when I started questioning that, it just opens up this floodgate of other things that um, I hadn't considered before. And so I started making, uh, about six months ago, a proactive effort to start listening to voices I thought I would disagree with, just to try to understand their perspective and and see the world through their eyes and you know new hampshire politics is is a really fun thing to be around we're very spoiled and i had gone to see every single major democratic candidate at one point or another and trump was there with his rally the day before the new hampshire primary and i thought you know what why not if nothing else it's going to be a complete spectacle going into it the people in my life i mean both liberal and conservative were genuinely afraid for my safety when i told them i was going to this trump rally and so the very The very first thing when I was waiting in line to get into the arena was that everyone was just so nice and they were so just average everyday people. They were people that, you know, you you meet on the street and you just never think about, oh, they're an evil Trump supporter Um, because we've developed this caricature of who a Trump supporter is and what they believe that is just completely out of touch with who they actually are. So there were no uh, cross burnings or uh, anything like that while you were waiting to get in? No, there are no cross burnings. There are no clan robes. There is no, nothing like that. No. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, and, and you, you mentioned in your piece, you know, that you, you had this perception of the quote unquote deplorables. And then you had the interaction with people that, uh, you know, basically share a lot of the same concerns, questions that you have. And just so then how that proceeded, how that whole rally experience was. 
Yeah, and it, well, it wasn't even that um, they, they necessarily I – mean, there's a vast disagreement in that group. And this is the thing that I think people that are more liberal don't understand is that they perceive Trump supporters as all in this, like, cult where they all believe the same thing and they don't question the dear leader. But there is a lot of disagreement with Trump and the group. They they don't yeah. necessarily agree with all of his Trump policies. They don't like his Twitter. They don't always like his attitude. And that's really not the point. They see him as an outsider that has their best Back and that it's loyal and that will be there for them where other politicians weren't. That's why they like him. And you write in your piece, too, the energy there. And just it was since you are a, a veteran rally goer, you have some frame of reference. And it, it was uh, an energy that you've never experienced before. No, it was it was so joyous and happy and fun. It was like being at a rock concert. I mean, I went to Barack Obama's events in New Hampshire in 2008, and it was it was Trump's rally was so far beyond what I experienced even at Obama's rally. And so it was just it was an incredibly fun experience. You say in your piece that you think Democrats are in for an ass kicking come November that they don't even see coming. And I wonder if what you just described is at least one of the reasons why you think that. Well, I think it's so funny because, I mean, my article right now has like 2.8 million views on it, which is insane. And, you know, I, I've heard from so many people who are trying to get their friends who are Democrats to read the article and they just won't do it. They won't even take in information that is outside of their worldview. And I think that they've created these bubbles around themselves where they just don't want to acknowledge the broader reality. I think November is going to be a shock for them. And frankly, I think that they've got it coming. And then now, I mean, it's just important to note, I mean, you voted for uh, Mayor Pete in the primary there in New Hampshire. You still, I'm sure, lean left on a number of issues, uh, even though you moved your formal registration to independent. So it's not like you uh, had a uh, Saul of Tarsus uh, conversion and you're fully on board. It's just that you're just sort of asking questions and doing a little bit of a mirror check on what the left is saying versus how they're behaving. Yeah, that's exactly right. I really have no idea who I'm going to vote for in the general. It really depends on who the Democrats end up nominating. There are definitely candidates that I will not vote for under any circumstances. And I'm just keeping my options open. I said this in my article, but, you know, I'm uncomfortable with the extremes that exist on the right. I'm also uncomfortable with the extremes that exist on the left. I just don't think it's healthy. And my real goal in putting my piece out there was more so just to humanize the people that are not in either extreme, but that maybe just have differences of opinions on how we should go about solving our problems. And at the end of the day, we have to start seeing each other as human beings because we're all on the same team. This is all of our country. And if we can't just get along and try to find ways to compromise and work towards that common goal together, I just don't know what that means for us as a larger society. I, I want to go back to something because you were talking about treating people who disagree with you like human beings. And, and that has formally been a posture rejected by so many Democrats. I mean, Maxine Waters, perhaps most famously talking about you see a Trump supporter or you see somebody from the administration in public, go harass them, don't let them have dinner, so on and so forth. There's there is a, a and I'm not saying this is everybody who's a Democrat voter at all, but there are people with profile in the party that are saying basically do not treat them as human beings. There needs to be a reckoning, not just for Donald Trump, but for everyone who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah, ab absolutely. And honestly, you know, I look back at some of the things I said, you know, a couple of years ago, and it, it, I, I carry a, a lot of shame and guilt right now for things that I said, because I was doing exactly the same thing. I was going after people who were Trump supporters with every fiber of my being. And frankly, you know, what people need to understand is that that didn't make me feel good. That didn't make me 
feel powerful and it didn't accomplish anything. It just pushed us farther apart. Um, and so we need to start trying different tactics because yelling at people, calling them Nazis, calling them white supremacists, that's not going to change their mind. You have to try to understand what their perspective is and try to understand where your common ground is and find compromise. Those are revolutionary statements, I guess, in the modern context, uh, unfortunately. She is Dr. Carolyn Borsenko, organizational psychologist. The Bloomberg may be able to use your services, too, apparently with the Bloomberg culture there. Maybe they could need some some help. But uh, she's also consultant. What's that? You could use my help for sure. Yes. Organizational psychologist, consultant, executive coach, and the creator and owner of Zen Workplace. Check out her piece on Medium.com that I tweeted out after attending a Trump rally. I realize Democrats are not ready for 2020. Dr. Borsenko, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. the Dan Prof Show. Well, as we move from the era of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States to uh, the progeny, Zinn's progeny, in part, the 1619 Project, uh, we'll talk a little bit later in the show with Bob Woodson from the Woodson Center about a response to that project, his 1776 response, a bunch of uh, scholars as well as activists responding to uh, provide a complete history of black Americans, which is something distinct from what 1619 is doing. But there needs to be more joined, more scholarship at the K through 12 level, for the K through 12 level, for the collegiate level, and in our society more generally. If the complete history of America is going to be more widely understood and those foundational values replicated in future generations. Well, another offering in furtherance of that comes to us from Wilford McClay, who is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and the author of the book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Professor McClay joins us now. Professor, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Dan. I'm really happy to do it. What was the uh, the inspiration for uh, this history book that you put together? Well, it's been something I think had been brewing for a while. Uh, you know, the, I think one of the things that began to crystallize when the it, the college board, which is the organization that does the advanced placement exams, they revised the AP U.S. history test in ways that were really alarming to a lot of us who teach history and care about history, uh, that uh, they were basically uh, excising the the founders, the framers, the making of the Constitution, or giving it short shrift, and instead concentrating on um, sort of transatlantic economic issues, which of course means the slave trade, among other things. Uh, And um, really giving a distorted and uninspiring view of the American past. And uh, so we, we, a group of us, and I was very involved with this, um, made an open letter to the college board uh, asking them to, you know, revert to their formerly, former more neutral position. And they largely did, but the textbooks picked up the new standards. And, uh, 
Uh, and so a, a number of us felt, well, there's got to be a new textbook. And I, I kept saying to people, I agree, and I hope you find someone to do it. Because <laughs> I yeah. did not want to be that person. <laughs> uh, but it ended up, you know, at some point you have to stop moaning and griping and, 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 uh, and do something. So, uh, so I did. And uh, I was very fortunate that Encounter Books, uh, which is not a, an educational publisher, uh, wanted to do the book. And it meant that I could do it my way. I wouldn't have a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of nattering nabobs uh, uh, leaning over my shoulder telling me, you can't say that, you must say this. And, and uh, otherwise... Uh, uh, censoring me or, or uh, distorting the account. So uh, for better or worse, and I hope more better than worse, what, what you get in the final version of the book is, is uh, an outlook of someone who, who loves this country, uh, who thinks it is, uh, you know, an, uh, one of the most outstanding moments in human history is the creation and sustenance of this country, but that we have flaws that have to be pointed out too. I, this is not a, a uh, rendition of Stars and Stripes forever, uh, <laughs> although it has its moments. <laughs> is, is, so, is the, so is the, it's a balanced account. It's trying to be a balanced right. account, which is uh, very hard to find these days. Is the the per, is this uh, to be uh, used as a textbook at the K through twelve and maybe even collegiate yes. level? That yes, and it is being already used. We just published it last May, and uh, uh, so it's it's mainly attracted general readers, which, which is great, but it wasn't in fact the audience I had in mind in school. Uh, these, you know, uh, I was thinking of that kid who's just about to take the AP U.S. history exam, you know, a book mm. to kind of pull it all together for him or her and, and, uh, uh, and give a kind of vision of what American history is. And, uh, uh, but uh, I'm, people in colleges are using it. Um, uh, high schools are using it. I am driving myself crazy flying around the country going talking to schools and teachers about uh, about the book uh, and I just we're about to publish a teacher's guide a very extensive um, I mean the manuscript was 600 pages <laughs> a teacher's guide for teachers that what they can use in the classroom uh, for tests and exams and in quizzes and and formulating study projects and that kind of thing. So, well, when, so we're really yes, we're yeah. really aiming at that that market. And anybody who's listening who's a teacher, just just contact me uh, through the University of Oklahoma, and I'll I'll uh, see if I can get you a review copy or something like that. If you're really interested in adopting it. Well, when we come back, I, I want to hear more about how those uh, conversations with teachers and administrators, uh, how those proceed. And then also get a little bit into the into the substance of the book. We're talking to Professor Wilford McClay from the University of Oklahoma, author of the book Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. Uh, we'll be right back with more. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Professor Wilfred McClay. He's uh, at the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of the book Land of Hope, an Invitation to the Great American Story. And Professor McClay, you were talking about how your uh, the book is being uh, utilized at K through 12 level around the country, and you're 
busily jetting off everywhere that uh, will have you to, <laughs> to pitch the book and talk to teachers. And, and I wonder how, what, what reaction you're getting from history teachers around the country when, uh, uh, from uh, my cursory read here, you're not, uh, that this book doesn't contain some of the, um, the same conclusions that have been advanced by books that have a decidedly leftist bent. Yeah, you mean like Howard Zinn's yes. uh, People's History of the United States. For example. States. Yeah. Uh, well, I, the reaction has been very favorable when people will turn out to listen to me. Um, and I'll give an example. I spoke in Rochester, New York at a, uh, a, a gathering of – really a kind of elite gathering of, of very, very talented teachers uh, convened by uh, uh, a professor from uh, uh, Hamilton College. And uh, uh, it was really quite extraordinary. And they would love the book. They were very interested in the book. And uh, and then this past week, um, not to give invidious uh, comparisons, but I went to uh, Scarsdale, New York, and spoke at the, the, the town hall there. And uh, the, my host had invited all the local school officials. Not one of them would show up. Mm. Uh, and none of the teachers showed up. Uh, what what were there were, were parents and students, and they were very enthusiastic. So it, there there are barriers, uh, there are barriers to entry, as they say, and uh, we're just going to have to patiently, you know, keep at it and and make inroads where people are willing to listen uh, and recognize that, you know, one of the things that I'm increasingly convinced of is that this, this lack of a grounding in American history and a sense of the American story, American narrative, is not only miseducation of our young people, I think it reflects something, a deeper malaise, you know, that we're living in an era in which, you know, the, 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 the rate of suicide, of drug abuse, of all kinds of pathologies is on the rise. And here, not throughout the whole Western world, but especially here in the United States. And, Look, I can't prove anything, but I think having uh, – if you have a sense that your past is inglorious and your present is deplorable, what can you think your future holds? Uh, so I think the loss of a sense of our past as something honorable, noble, exceptional, uh, magnificent in many ways is um, – I mean it's incalculable how much of an effect that has on the, the morale of our people and their willingness to be good citizens in a republic. And after all, republic requires citizens to be active, to be engaged, to be to love uh, the country that they're involved in helping to govern. And um, and this is this is uh, precisely the opposite message that's being delivered by the 1619 Project, backed by the New York Times. Yeah. So I mean, the timeliness of this couldn't be uh, couldn't be better in a sense. But but in another sense, it has to be frustrating to an academic like you and many others uh, that uh, that a a uh, a historical project like the 1619 project, as so criticized by scholars across the political spectrum, yes. uh, you know, that that talks about slavery, but won't address the Civil War. I mean, how do you would address one without the other. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. But 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 it, the the reaction is just power ahead. If you can put commercials on the Oscars and if you can put a commercial on during the NBA All Star Game, then there is no uh, intellectual accounting for what you're producing. Exactly. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. And I think it's very revealing that 
um, there's a group of, I think, five or six scholars led by uh, Sean Valence of Princeton University, who is nobody's idea of a conservative, uh, but is an honest man, a truth seeker. Uh, and they wrote a letter, you know, detailing some of the Times' egregious errors. Um, and uh, the Times has simply blown them off. Uh, it, it, and uh, instead runs ads on the Oscars. I mean, that says it all. They're they're not interested in truth. They're interested in, in a sort of fabrication that will serve certain political ends. And uh, by the way, if I could squeeze in, I just found out this morning, but I found out about the Bob Woodson thing, and I am so happy about that. I, I, I admire Bob Woodson tremendously, uh, and uh, he's... He's the guy to do it, but there are there are uh, there are plenty of people, uh, African Americans and and um, you know people of all persuasions who who are upset about this, because you know to me what the the, the sixteen nineteen project as the Times did it was a great missed opportunity. I think it's important to say something about the fact that. Uh, that Americans of African descent go back all the way to the beginning, that they, they were here in 1619. Uh, it's not like they were just sort of sprinkled in as an afterthought. I mean, and I think that's an important aspect of grasping our history and grasping the membership uh, that, that, that people of African descent have or ought to have had uh, in our history. But to what they've done is something different. They've said this, this, uh, racism is in our DNA. Like they use that expression, yes. uh, and uh, it's it, so that if I'm a, a young black person, or you know, uh, really just about anybody, but uh, a, a well-meaning, well-intentioned white person looking at this, saying, "Wow, there's no hope for this country." Uh, as a black person, I am cut off from the promise of American life, and that is not just false; that's a pernicious falsehood. That's a life blighting falsehood and we we've got to push back against that uh and and god bless bob woodson what a great thing he's done because 1776 unified i believe is the web address right and uh and and that's that's it you know the 1619 divides 1776 unites because 1776 is the declaration of independence it is all men are created equal it is you know the logic of american self-rule it, it's all of what uh, it is the founding that is the founding not 1690 he, uh, he is he is professor wilford mcclay university of oklahoma the book land of hope an invitation to the great american story teachers listening check it out uh, parents uh, kids in k through 12 school systems listening turn this turn your teachers and administrators onto this book land of hope get a uh, a fair and balanced, as he said, accounting of American history from the nation's founding through the post-Cold War. Professor McClay, thanks so much for joining us. Best of luck with the book. It's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for what you do. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And, uh, of course, uh, Seattle has been an incubator for musical trends over the generations, giving us the grunge movement in the 90s. Well, there's a new one. 
and this comes to us straight from a Seattle City Council move, uh, meeting, land use and neighborhood committee meeting to be specific. It's an ensemble cast that I'm sure is uh, guaranteed to spawn a new genre of music for the 21st century. These individuals uh, speaking out, well, singing out against uh, a planned development on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. That's right, the trees. Such a lack of life and sound. All that's left is bare, muddy ground. A magnificent tree was murdered. Murdered. The mighty dollar cut it down. Mm. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Stand up. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Laws protect exceptional trees, but the city grants exemptions to these. Instead, they reward the developer's greed and sanction the murderer's deeds. There's There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. No more leaves shimmering with golden light. No more gentle shedding of rains, nor tulip blossoms rustling in the wind. Now nothing remains but that hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. There's a hole in the sky, in the sky. Instead of a spreading canopy, there's a hole in the sky. In the sky. Instead of a 90-year-old tree, there's a hole in the sky, in the sky. That tree did not belong to you or me. There's a hole in the sky where the tree should be. Pass the tree ordinance now. Oh, and pass the tree ordinance now, says Joan Baez. Uh, Remarkable. Powerful. And uh, if you uh, watch it, I tweeted it out at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. If you uh, watch it, you get to enjoy really the um, artistic feel of the entire collection of individuals uh, from the bald hippie wearing the Seattle Seahawks T-shirt to a woman with like a, a bush on her head. Wow. It's nice. I mean, it's, it's been a while since Seattle was the epicenter of the music scene, and, and now it is again. This is the Dan Fox Show. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft. Show.com on Twitter at Dan Proft Show and at Dan Proft. And uh, there is really little doubt that the overwhelming 
evidence suggests former FBI Deputy Director Andy McCabe lied to the FBI, committed a criminal act, and did so knowingly, even though one of his defenses was he unintentionally said things that were untrue and later corrected the record. So why wasn't he charged? Why did the Department of Justice close the case on Friday? Is this a triumph of the rule of men over the rule of law yet again, which works out well for Andy McCabe in this instance, but doesn't work out well for the Republic long term? Uh, He always has good pieces, but I have to say his distillation of why McCabe was in charge. This is one of the best legal arguments synthesized into something accessible for the layman. You're going to find Andy McCabe's, I mean, excuse me, Andy McCarthy's piece about Andy McCabe in National Review, nationalreview.com, where he explained over the weekend why McCabe was in charge and that we want to go through that with him. And he joins us now, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor to National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Happy Monday. Happy uh, Monday to you. And uh, again, uh, a wonderful piece that you wrote for uh, NationalReview.com, which really lays it out chapter and verse. You start with this uh, comparison. I mean, He didn't intentionally mislead the FBI investigators, so it's not prosecutable. Well, the FBI conceded that General Flynn didn't intentionally mislead them either, and yet they prosecuted him for lying to the FBI. So with respect to the actually the question of McCabe's conduct, is there any doubt that he committed a crime? No, he's even apologized to some of the agents who were involved in the questioning because his claim that he was not the source of the leak, which of course he knew he was the source of, about as willful episode of lying as you get, but that caused a lot of heartburn and more importantly, a lot of wasted effort and resources at the Bureau because they took the deputy FBI director, the number two guy in the agency, at his word that he was not the source of the leak and didn't know anything about it and pursued all kinds of alternative theories about who it might be in reliance on what he had told them. So he not only misled them, and it's not only clear from the circumstances that he knew very well that he was misleading them, but it cost them a lot of what an obstruction case is about is misallocating the government's resources because somebody misleads them. But, but This I, is like classic obstruction. I just want to emphasize something you said, because this hasn't gotten enough play. He tried to put them on the trail of other people. He tried to scapegoat other people for something he knew he did. That's how slimy this is. Right. And not only that, if you look at his conduct in conjunction with his final concession that he did it, right? The day the article comes out in the Wall Street Journal that is generated by his leak, he reams out the New York and Washington FBI offices, the directors of those offices, and spins it so that they must be the culprits of the leak and they need to get their house in order. And then he says at about the same time, this is his final version of events, he freely told Jim Comey, who was then the FBI director, that he himself personally was the source of the leak and Comey thought it was a good idea. So at the same time that he's reaming out the New York and Washington offices for for being the source of the leak, which he knows he is, he is supposedly also telling Comey 
that he himself, McCabe, is the source of the leak, which, of course, uh, you know, the uh, inspector general points out that in both instances, his explanations were demonstrably false. But putting aside the, the fact that in each individual instance, what he said was demonstrably false, if you hold up his story, you can't even coherently put it together. It was so riven with lies. I want to go back to something because one of the things, and this was pointed out by uh, Horowitz, the inspector general, but, you know, gets lost over the many months, that his uh, lying about the leaking of information to the Wall Street Journal. This is important because it wasn't like he did this uh, being over aggressive and trying to you know, meet out uh, or secure justice for the American people. He leaked this information to Wall Street Journal to make himself look good at the expense of the FBI. Right. This was a guy that was just, you know, trying to aggrandize himself. He wasn't acting, you know, overly aggressively in pursuit of the truth or in pursuit of some notion of justice. It was just in pursuit of inflating himself. And let me just make this point because I think this homes in on exactly what you're saying. There are times, I've never agreed with this approach. I just don't think you should do it, but put that aside. There are times when the FBI or law enforcement will strategically leak something to the media. I'm thinking mostly of a, a practice that used to be known as tickling the wires. In other words, you have a wiretap case where things are dormant and you think that in order to shake things up and try to get some evidence and prompt people to spill the beans about stuff that they know, you leak out something in the media when you're up on people's phones, figuring that that will cause them to react and chirp on the phone about the conspiracy, which shows their knowledge and intent, etc. So there are times when you can at least arguably say that leaks of investigative information are strategic for purposes of advancing an investigation. What we're talking about here was not this. McCabe had been the subject of some bad publicity because of the conflicts of interest between his participation in investigations that related to Hillary Clinton and the fact that his wife as a state Senate candidate, I think it was in Virginia, had gotten a lot of funding from Clinton-related sources. That was a thing in the media. And what he did was he orchestrated a leak that made it apparent to people or was to, was intended to make it apparent to people that it was the Obama Justice Department that was trying to pressure the FBI to go easy on the Clinton Foundation investigation. And McCabe was fighting to make sure the investigation didn't get shut down. So he put that out in order to make himself look good and to rebut the reporting that had been done about him. It had not only did it have nothing to do with advancing the investigation, just a few weeks before, Comey had testified in the House, uh, I think it was the House Judiciary Committee, and he was asked about the Clinton Foundation and he wouldn't say anything because the Bureau was trying not to admit the existence of the Clinton Foundation investigation. The Bureau figured they were already neck deep in the politics of the 2016 election anyway because of the Hillary Clinton emails investigation. So the last thing they wanted to concede publicly was that there was something going on out there with the Clinton Foundation. And McCabe, uh, knowing that that was the Bureau's position, put the information out anyway because he thought it served his personal interests, regardless of what was good for the Bureau. So getting back to having this guy dead to rights and then the decision by justice not to prosecute, you made uh, mention of one of the variables, the D.C. jury pool, which, of course, would be decidedly anti-Trump. That's a factor in thinking about do we have enough to convict and uh, can we you know get this as you said get this uh, get a unanimous verdict from a jury in this jurisdiction 
the other factors that you think went into DOJ's decision to punt? Well, one thing, of course, is that the witnesses the government would have had to rely on, several of them were very pro-McCabe and would have been spinning for McCabe. In fact, Lisa Page, who was an important witness, was evidently spinning for McCabe in the grand jury. You know, she said, well, you know, he didn't have any motive to lie, so I don't know why he would lie. Of course, the motive to lie is clear as day. She said in the grand jury, uh, uh, reportedly, he had the authority in the FBI to authorize leaks of intel of, of investigative information, so why would he lie about that, which is just a stupid defense. You know, no one's saying... He didn't have the authority to do it. The question is whether he exercised the authority out of self-interest rather than something that was good for the Bureau. So the point is, if you have important witnesses like Jim Comey would have been an important witness in this case, Lisa Page would have been an important witness. You don't want to be the prosecutor if your important witnesses are sympathetic to the defendant and hostile to you. So that's a challenge. The other thing that would have played out here is there's a lot of evidence that the Bureau and the Justice Department went out of their way in a retaliatory way to get rid of McCabe on the fast track faster than the rules for terminating someone allow. And there would have been a lot of evidence in the trial about command influence is what they would call it in the military. But, you know, Trump's tweets about McCabe and demanding that, you know, something happened to McCabe and poisoning the well in terms of the jury pool about what a liar McCabe is and all that stuff. That would all have come into the trial, which is why the district judge who was handling uh, some of the litigation attendant to this investigation was so upset about it. Couldn't you just for, you know forget those hostile witnesses then? I mean, the transcript is the smoking gun. On X date, he said this. On X date forward, he said uh, uh, something 180 degrees different. And you have sort of all of these other contextual factors that are, are not in dispute because they're not disputable. So couldn't you just let the evidentiary record speak for itself? I don't think so, because, for example, you would need Page. McCabe didn't put this leak out himself. Right. He put it out through Page. So she would have to explain, you know, how the leak happened. It's not like you're going to call the Wall Street Journal, right? They're going to fight you tooth and nail about having to disclose sources. Testify. Yeah. He's Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, contributing editor at Nash Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. And I tweeted out his very, very good piece on why uh, Andy McCabe was in charge. If you want to understand it, read that piece. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a great week. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show well as we were discussing with uh, nro's andy mccarthy andy mccabe may not be prosecuted but michael avenatti sure was not just prosecuted but on friday convicted found guilty on all three charges in connection to his attempt to extort up to $25 million from Nike. Uh, He faces up to 42 years in prison, and uh, he's got other pending criminal matters, too, that could tack on more time yet. Michael Avenatti, before we forget who this guy was and how he was treated, nay, feted by the D.C. press corps, a little compendium for your listening pleasure. This is who Michael Avenatti was on CNBC and MSNBC and the late night talk shows 
and the midday talk shows. He was uh, the folk hero, the guarantor of Western civilization. He was treated as a serious contender for the presidency, for goodness sakes. And he was a charlatan the entire time. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's Everyone at CNN. The Look, Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. Oh, yeah. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. These people all like you. I'm the only person right here Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller. We think you Robert guys Miller, are the Behar, tip of the spear nice. that's going to take down Donald Trump. Right. Michael Avenatti's a beast. Okay, that's true. And he, he's a beast. He's a beast. I hand it to yeah. her and I hand it to Michael Avenatti. But he has a great, bigger calling here that being a lawyer is minimal compared to what he's doing. No one has talked tougher directly to Donald Trump on Donald. TV oh than Michael God. Avenatti. And Donald Trump is afraid to mention his name. That's fascinating. <laughs> Donald Trump is terrified of Michael Avenatti. He gives Trump a run for his money more than anybody else, Michael Avenatti. <laughs> Existential threat to the Trump presidency. Oh, the Democrats could learn something for you. You are messing with Trump a lot more than they are. He oh, has yeah. no doubt created sheer panic in Donald Trump's very fragile mind. Michael Avenatti is laying down the law as guest co-host. And is he really thinking about running for president? Uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. Ryan look Stelter, at the field of Democrats CNN. right now, and Avenatti's the one who stands out. If they decide they value a fighter most, yes. people would be foolish to underestimate Michael yeah. Avenatti. I have always said that they need a fighter. Look, I mean, we're going to continue to use the media. I think we've used it with great success. All of my sexual fantasies involve handcuffs. Uh -huh. oh. Oh, wonderful moment uh, between Avenatti and Joy Behar. Wasn't that cute? Aren't they darling together? That was the full span of Beltway Big Government Press Corps outlets, and you know, echoed throughout the uh, lands by their subordinates in major urban markets outside of the eastern seaboard. That's what they thought of Michael Avenatti. Why? Because he had the only qualification that matters, that mattered. While he was representing Stormy Daniels, he was at that point the uh, best chance they had to potentially take down Trump or at least cause problems for Trump. And that confers hero status in the minds of uh, the press corps. Outlets. I mean, you hear he has a higher calling than being a lawyer. Anybody who watched this guy for five seconds, the oleaginous Avenatti, could could and should tell, should be able to tell that this guy just crawled under out from underneath a rock, not a rock star. Uh, and so it was fun to listen to Anderson Cooper and CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin lament the fall of Michael Avenatti and also try to distance themselves while conceding that he was omnipresent on CNN. I mean, these guys, Jeffrey Tubin uh, providing a scintillating anecdote about a midtown lunch he and Avenatti had. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare. 
Well, you know, I, today I was thinking of, uh, as I'm sure many people remember, he was on CNN a lot. A ton. And, and, I, and, I did stories, not just the Stormy Daniels interview uh, that he was, he was, he of you did. was part of. I did uh, previous minutes. stories yeah, with him on important. 60 Minutes on other cases he had. And, and I, I got to know him. And I remember once at the peak of all this, we went to lunch in Midtown when our offices were in Midtown. And we walked back together toward to CNN. And... It was like walking with a major, major celebrity. People mm. came up to him. Those were all CNN like, employees. You know, go for it. Go get Trump. Mm. You know, he had this hashtag Basta. People mm. remembered that. And at the peak of this, he even announced he was considering running for president. And he went to Iowa. He went to New Hampshire. And the, the, it, to call it hubris is not even... Uh, I mean, it doesn't do it justice. I mean, the, the craziness of this. And when you look at this case and the three cases, he's 48 years old. He could be looking at decades in prison. Well, I'm not sure Stormy will wait for him. But Jeffrey, will you? Anderson, you? Fredo? The whole collection at CNN? Let's run the gamut of all the outlets that uh, offered such fawning coverage and were so generous with their platforms. Will you wait for Michael to come back? You know, it's it's uh, worth noting that among those other criminal actions Jeffrey Tubin referenced, one is for uh, domestic abuse. What happened to the Me Too movement? Michael Avenatti's exempt because why? As I said, what is the, Michael Avenatti's qualification for all of this? That he represented Stormy Daniels. And that he leveraged the representation of Stormy Daniels to become even more hysterical in the direction of Trump, even more demagogic in the direction of Trump than Larry O'Donnell and the full the full retinue of uh, of uh, left wing cranks at uh, at uh, MSNBC. That's why he was somebody important. Folk hero, higher calling. Savior, I mean, treated as uh, in messianic terms. You heard. What a remarkable indictment of the D.C. press corps. Yet another one on top of another one on top of another one. When is when is their credibility truly dead and buried? We're supposed to take these people seriously. Oh, it's crazy what was happening then. Oh, really, Jeffrey Anderson? Was that what you were saying in the moment? Uh-huh. It was so crazy. You were all swept up in it, too. We, we just lost our heads for a second. We got starstruck. Michael Avenatti, this standard-issue standard issue trial lawyer that you could you know, spin your finger through uh, yellow pages and come up with dozens of guys like Avenatti. But he was presidential timber, and all those networks and all those talk show hosts were giving platform to that lunacy and to this criminal. This is the Dan
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And, of course, a couple weeks ago when Rush Limbaugh announced to the world his diagnosis of advanced lung cancer, there were a lot of reactions to ditto heads. There was, of course, concern and prayers and hopefulness that Rush and his doctors will be able to beat this and get him into remission. Um, but there were some online that were less charitable, and uh, they became even less charitable after he was conferred the Presidential Medal of Freedom in the gallery at the State of the Union address. A lesser-known story is the one of Jordan Peterson. It's known in some intellectual circles, conservative circles, but Jordan Peterson, who shot to uh, stardom with some of his YouTube videos and then those uh, talks that he turned into books, has been battling uh, his own demons, including an addiction to uh, a tranquilizer used to treat anxiety. Our next guest uh, wrote a little bit about that in the context of not just Jordan Peterson and uh, explaining why he uh, rose to popularity so quickly, but also uh, the reaction to critics of Peterson, less than charitable, as they were less than charitable to, to uh, rush with uh, the announcement of his diagnosis. Is that something so unusual among certain quarters of those engaged in political discourse, or is the sheer volume of it something that is unusual? Uh, we'll uh, talk about this and other topics with Michael Warren Davis, who is the editor of Crisis Magazine, as well as a contributor to the American Conservative Spectator USA and First Things. Michael Warren Davis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's good to be back. So, uh, you know, just the, 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 the uh, you know, wishing uh, bad things on Rush or Jordan Peterson, suggesting that they have uh, reconciliation to make before they're entitled to the well wishes of their critics I mean, is that something that's so unusual in our politics, or is it the volume that's unusual, or what's your review? Yeah, I'm, they have to reconcile themselves to the left before they're entitled to mercy, I guess, is the message that they've been getting. I'm glad you brought up Rush, because uh, I, I, I noticed even in the comments box at the American Conservative, some people were saying, oh, yeah, it's terrible what they've uh, done to what they've done to Jordan Peterson, how cruel they've been to him since his diagnosis. But who I can't really can't stand is Rush Limbaugh, and I think that he's got any, everything coming to him. It's uh, yeah, I mean, no, this is uh, fairly common. I don't think that, uh, that there's been any. It happened to Eric Bowling when his son committed. I think his son committed suicide. There was a you know he yes. was told the same thing. Well, you 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 deserve it. Uh, you deserve all the misery that you get. It's always the same thing for, you know, your conservatism oppresses women, it oppresses homosexuals, it oppresses racial minorities. So hopefully they always say the same thing. They always make it sound like like it's an act of mercy. Um, you know, if hopefully through your, your own suffering and your own experiences with tragedy, you'll come to better empathize with the people who suffer because of your ideology. I don't want to live in a glass house on this. So, you know, I've seen intemperate comments online about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, too, when she was, you know, re-diagnosed with uh, different forms of cancer and as she's battling through her health uh, effects. And, you know, I, 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 I wish no ill will on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, in terms of her health. I hope she survives and continues to live as long as God will allow. There are intemperate comments that go sort of that way, too. And I wonder if some of the the idea that politics just seeps into every corner of our life, everything has to have a political qualifier, including your otherwise stated Christian values. 
I think that's absolutely right. And uh, I would have loved to have gone more into that in the piece. And I do want to make a, a certain distinction because what I've noticed, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an excellent example. What I've noticed is that usually when uh, the comments are directed against Justice Ginsburg, they're usually just wantonly cruel. And it's by no, no one's standards of of compassion or, or mercy. What I've noticed on the left is, as I said, it's uh, it's sort of like, you know, this suffering can be redemptive. It's, uh, it, it'll, it'll ch- it'll, hopefully it'll change your opinion. And that's what, I think that there is, that does exist uh, to a, a certain extent on the right, but I think that it, it's what, well, maybe this is going, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think so. You know, the John Lukash and some of the, you know, what are called the cultural Marxists, the, the Marxists that arose, that sort of remained prominent after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, had a concept called um, proletariat justice. And proletariat justice has nothing to do with quote unquote bourgeois notions of justice, which is you know trial by jury. Those are all mechanisms that the bourgeoisie use to protect themselves. Proletariat justice is you know if you if you're part of the system that oppresses the the working class, then you are de facto guilty. And it doesn't matter if you yourself have committed any acts that might be considered immoral or oppressive, because you're part of the system, you benefit from the system, you don't fight against the system, you are. If, you know, ipso facto, you are guilty. Mm-hmm. And I think to a, to a slightly, but not too slightly lesser extent, there is a similar mentality on the left that doesn't quite exist on the right. When, uh, when we come back, I want to pick up on that and also uh, get to the, the part of your piece where you talk about why you think Jordan Peterson uh, became so popular so quickly. More with Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator to USA, and First Things. And uh, just speaking of Jordan Peterson and getting beyond the reactions, particularly in quarters that are less charitable to Peterson's uh, battle with addiction, Peterson's rise in popularity uh, coming sort of out of left field, if you will, with YouTube videos and some very confrontational talks or attempted talks at college on college campuses. And then uh, what he translated into books were, which could have, you know, easily like his 12 rules for life could have sort of cut and pasted the Beatitudes or something and uh, had this had more or less the same book. And I wonder what you think was the particular niche, because you talk about it in your piece on the American conservative, the particular niche that Jordan Peterson occupied that needed filling. So, I mean, this is the age of the self-help guru, isn't it? One of them ran for president. Didn't do too terribly badly. In any other Mm. age, someone like Marianne Williamson would have been laughed off the stage. But, I mean, she, even some conservatives were heartened by her presence on the debate stage, saying, you know, she might be, she might be kind of nutso, but she does speak a, a deeper need that people have for reconciliation and self-improvement and things like that. It's not too terribly surprising. I mean, we do live in an age where, People, and we know this about ourselves and about the people around us, we, we feel sort of isolated from our fellow human beings and, and we feel sort of moralist. We don't, it's, it's really hard to some days to feel like you, you have a purpose in life. I mean, you know, you get up, you're living in a small apartment, 
you go to, you go to a job, your employer and your employee and your colleagues don't respect you. The work that you do, you know, whether it's flipping burgers and I, I have nothing against anyone that does what they have to do to make a living, but you just it doesn't really feel like it's it has any purpose. And you go home and what do you do? You know, you crack a beer, you watch television, you play video games, and then you, you do it all over again. It doesn't feel like you're there's really much point to to all of it. I think that's where these self-help gurus come from. Some of them are obviously shysters there. You know, they're just saying, you know, if you if take the, the prosperity gospel Christians, if you uh, give money to me, you know, God will love you. You'll receive spiritual satisfaction. Jordan Peterson's not like that. You describe his advice. Uh, I thought this was an appropriate term. You describe his advice as fatherly. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of what causes the modern malaise is, is the, the absence of fatherhood. And a lot of people, you know, even people that come from good, loving families, a lot of fathers just, they don't pass down. You know, there's not a lot of Andy Griffiths running around anymore. Hmm. And I think this is the great virtue, regardless of whatever you think of his conclusions. Jordan Peterson is, you know, generally politically, when he started out, he was left-wing. He's a clinical psychologist. And he was just kind of looking around the world and saying, why is everyone so miserable? Why does everyone have a hard time functioning on such a basic level? And, you know, why are, why are men acting like boys? And so he, uh, he through, you know, scientific observation of, of human behavior, he came up with, it was originally 40 rules, but he distilled them into his 12 rules for life. Uh, and there, some of them are as simple as everyone knows, you know, make your bed. Start off the day by, you know, imposing some sort of order and tidiness in your life. And, and, and you know, it'll help to, to make your mental space more, <clears throat> more structured and, and it'll help you to, uh, to sort of bring more more balance into into your daily life, and yeah, I mean that, that's good. That's the that's the kind of advice that you you want your father to give you. Again, it does help the, you to develop into a, a healthy, grown human being. Thinking about this, though, thinking about you know father, what you were getting at, fatherly advice, the void of fathers in the lives of so many. That big historical think piece that David Brooks penned for the Atlantic last week, talking about. Um, the evolution and devolution of family from extended family to nuclear family to um, to sort of a mishmash these days. And his his uh, I don't know, maybe his suggestion, I think he was more of a Scrivener describing what's happening than making specific recommendations. But he did talk about the, quote unquote, forged family, which is a political scientist term that we need to redefine kinship beyond blood relations and to those who we interact with on a professional or social day, uh, a social basis on a, uh, each day as a way to sort of reconnect to the uh, to a, a family structure that we don't have in the traditional sense anymore. That's interesting. I, I really actually quite like David Brooks, and I'm, I, I regret that I haven't. I didn't even see the piece. Mm. I look forward to reading it. I don't know if you read his his new book, The Second Mountain. I thought it was in, in parts it was very, very good. But David Brooks is <clears throat> again. I mean, I I know that I it's not it's not Mr. Brooks's fault that he doesn't agree with me. But reading his book, it's always you know he he's so perceptive and he sees so much of what's wrong with with modern society again with this feeling of isolation and purposelessness. Um, but you will never ever hear him suggest a a solution that goes beyond him. You know, um, leaving his his Manhattan townhouse. Yes. And, and quitting his job at the New York Times. You know, I mean, it has to be. It has to be. Uh, whatever solution there is to the modern malaise has to fit within his upper middle class 
New York intellectual circle. What he does and what he does in this piece is just he accurately describes the manifestations. He gives a accurate historical depiction of what's happened over the last 70 years without any discussion of possible root causes and thus root solutions. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just came back from a, a family funeral. And uh, one of the things that I I think everyone realizes when they're when they're in a, a family situation where they're around their family, especially as grownups, for extended periods of time is, you know, there are moments when <laughs> if, if I wasn't related to this person by blood, I wouldn't have anything <laughs> to do with them. I would just walk away. Right. Uh, and I think that, that those those ties of blood and, and community um, are important. And you can't just you, you can't just say, you know, well, my uncle lives in Florida. My aunt lives in California. I live in New York. So I'll just try to reforge those bonds with the people that I happen to work with. That's not really, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, we have, we have, the reason that we, we talk about these bonds as being bonds of kinship uh, is because they're integral to our blood relation to other people. And, of course, there are, there, you can have a good professional relationship with your colleague, but if you want those bonds of kinship, you have to go to your kin. You, want, you have to be where your family is. Uh, and, and, again, I mean, for, for David, I don't know where David Brooks grew up, but, I mean, if he grew up in Alabama, of course, I don't think that he would, he would say, well, the solution is, to, is for me to move back to Alabama. Again, I think that he, one of the concerns that I have about him is that he is limited to this, you know, as long as I can keep my apartment and my office in Manhattan, um, that's, that's, that's my threshold. And, and if it's going to disrupt my life in any serious way, uh, I'm not going to pursue it, but I, I think that the, and I'm, I'm working on a, a new book now, The Reactionary Mind, but, and the, the purpose of it is that, that, you know, we need disruption. Uh, part of the modern, the problem with the modern world uh, is that we're too afraid of disruption. We need to, we need to get out of our comfort zone, so to speak, if we want to, if we want to reclaim that feeling of, of purposefulness and community and kinship. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. When I was off for Valentine's Day, I uh, apologize. Uh, but um, in some places, every day in America is Valentine's Day. And this was the subject of uh, the uh, libertarian movement's Weird Al Yankovic. His name is Remy. He does uh, videos for Reason, Reason.com, Reason Magazine. And they're very good. And he's come up with another instant classic. So that you can think about uh, the love that was in the air on Friday, every day, particularly if you are visiting our nation's airports. Says an agent asked to inspect her braids. And then she pulled my hair behind my head and just like started laughing and was like, giddy up. I was very clear that's really not okay. TSA says it's taking the matter seriously and has launched an investigation. There's a calm surrender when you board a plane, when the touch of a lonely hand can't be turned away. You're a native person.
person. Uh, I'm Lebanese. Wearing tribal gray. <laughs> That's just my hair. Which always make our machines go dang, dang, dang. What I'm trying to say is can you feel the glow tonight? Yes, it feels bizarre. That's a good voice. It ain't enough for this third rate plunderer to think he's gone too far. Terroristy people, we haven't caught one yet. And though we spilled the ashes of your Nana Ruth, we neutralized the threat. Government forced processions, we won't do that again. Now walk right here and take off your shoes while I giddy up your head. And can you feel the glow tonight? Though it feels bizarre, it ain't enough for us third rate. Nope, I'm just going to drive. Just going to take my car. You're a weird dude. Weird dude. Can you feel what do you mean I can't be? Get your hands off of me tonight. Roping my hair. It's like a Biden meet and greet. That is Remy, Reason.com's Remy. You should check out all of his videos. This guy's excellent. And uh, can you feel the glove tonight? Probably could be appropriate for those uh, COVID-19 quarantines at military bases around the country as well. This is the damn Pop Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter at danproftshow, and at danproft. And uh, on uh, Friday, Bob Woodson and a group of black intellectuals, scholars, uh, university professors from around the country, along with activists, social service providers, and clergy from around the country, launched 1776, which is a direct response to the New York Times' 1619 Project. The 1619 Project we've talked a lot about on this show. You have the 1619 Project being backed to the extent that they're able to advertise their ahistorical perspective during the Oscars, also during 
this weekend's NBA All-Star Game, as I understand it as well. By the way, there's a partnership between Woodson 1776 and the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. There were a dozen essays released in direct response to the essays that were released by the 1619 Project. I shouldn't say in, in part in response to the 1619 essays that frame their project. And in part, it's a completely different narrative that 1776 seeks to tell. And we'll get to that with Bob. But the WashingtonExaminer.com, our friends over there, have partnered with Woodson to amplify these essays. And so they're rolling out essays and interviews over the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned for that with some of the scholars. And interestingly, it also includes people that have been historically center left, that are still center left, but not on this. People like Clarence Page, Chicago Tribune, who was one of the first essays that Washington Examiner rolled out, and he was at the press conference and spoke as well. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center and uh, founder of the 1776 effort as well. Bob, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be with you, Dan. It seems to me if I had to boil down the difference between 1776 and 1619 in one word, it would be agency. 1776 believe black Americans have agency and 1619 doesn't. That is true. I think 1619 really isn't a on the self-esteem of black America when you really think about it because what they say throughout their essays is that because of the birth defect of slavery in America that America's founding principles uh, as enshrined in Declaration of Independence are false and therefore racism is in the DNA of the country and therefore white America is forever stained by it and black America are forever victimized by it. And the only answer, according to Nicole Hannah uh, James, is reparation, government. And they make no reference of black America. In other words, they, they painted black America's history in America as coming off of slave ships, the plantations, to the ghettos, to welfare. And that has not been black America's trajectory. As I said in, in the essays, that when white America was at its worst, black America was at its best. And you can uh, you can get all those essays at 1776unites.com, 1776unites.com as the website. But yeah, uh, so picking up on that, one of the curious things about uh, the 1619 Project that you've raised and others have raised too is, uh, why won't you tell the stories of black achievement and resilience, even in the face of racist institutions like slavery or Jim Crow? Why won't you tell the story of Black Wall Street in Tulsa or the black business district in Durham, North Carolina during Jim Crow? Why won't you tell the stories of success and, and elevate examples that uh, black Americans today could emulate? That's a, it's a curious omission, isn't it? It really is. And what's dangerous about it is that young black Americans uh, uh, being raised in these toxic neighborhoods where there's violence and out of wedlock bursts, they're being told that the conditions that they're facing today have nothing to do with the choices that they're making, that it's because of systemic racism emanating from the history of slavery in America. That's a dangerous message to be sending to a people, that your faith in, in, in the future is defined by somebody that everybody says does not like you. And that's what's dangerous about it. You talk about agency in the city of Chicago in 1929, as one of our essays point out, Black Americans own 731 businesses in areas of Chicago. In 1929, we had $100 million in real estate assets. That's just in Chicago in the face of segregation. 
And all over the nation, there is proof that uh, we thrived and, and progressed in the midst of oppression. But our young people today are not going to be told these stories of success. And, cl- and that's what's they're not going to be told that. Clarence Page makes this point that, hey, look, I'm happy to, to talk about slavery and Jim Crow and the history of America and the mistakes that were made and the sins that were committed as much as you want to. But I think we should also talk about the future, answer the question that Martin Luther King asked at the end of his life after the 64 Civil Rights Act. Where do we go from here? So good Clarence Page makes the point, look, I, I want to talk about the whole thing, but we we can't continue to look to our future in the rearview mirror. We have to say, OK, how do I succeed and how do I how do I become a mover and shaker and how do I help other people to become a mover and shaker? And that also seems to be a question that 1619 doesn't want to ask, much less answer. No, and a very simple way of describing it is like looking at Hank Aaron through the prism of 1619, you would say he was a strikeout champ. But looking at it through 1776, you say, well, he's the all time home run champ. <laughs> I like that. You know, the other thing that a number of the scholars, uh, the point that they made uh, throughout, and you can see their interviews uh, at 1776unites.com as well as their essays, is um, whoever said America was perfect? The preamble of the Constitution, in order to form a more perfect union— and we're still in that process for we will forever be because we're fallible human beings of attempting to form a more perfect union. So the question shouldn't be, is America perfect? We all agree it's not and it never was and it never will be. The question is, are we efforting to form a new, more perfect union and are we living up to uh, Lincoln's promise to usher in a new birth of freedom, right? I agree, but you can personalize it. As, as I ask groups, how many of us listening to this program want to be judged by the dumbest thing we did when we were young? And so because our life is not defined by what we used to be, our life is defined as what we have become. And the nation should be judged the same way. Slavery was America's defect. But the fact that in every war defending this nation, blacks gave their lives willingly in defense and not one was found guilty of treason. That ought to, Are you telling me, 1619, that somehow the sacrifices that they were made was for a nation that was racist? Were they defending slavery? Were they defending the ideal of what America's promise held? We are the only country to really have an Emancipation Proclamation. We are the only country that fought a war over ending slavery. Where else in the world was that done? And so the 1619 Project's uh, thesis is that racism is part of America's DNA, and so there's nothing that can be done about it other than to impose their versions of restorative justice. Yeah, that means pay them more money. It's amazing that all of the authors in that series all making probably six-figure incomes. They live in safe, secure neighborhoods. The children are going to the best schools. They don't have to suffer the consequences of their advocacy. Can you imagine a 10-year-old black child being grown up in Chicago and being told from the time he's till 10 to 18 that America is racist and, the, and an evil empire, and yet when he gets 18, he's being asked to join the military to defend it or join the police force to defend this domestically. That's what's really dangerous about this 1619. Uh, I want to go back to something you said about, uh, well, this is my term, but candy-ass conservatives and, and what's different about this project where you have, as I mentioned at the outset, 
all these scholars, academics like John Sibley Butner from University of Texas and Glenn Lowry from Brown University and so many others are right here, Jason Hill from DePaul University, along with the activists, the social service providers, the clergy that are doing real things on the ground that have real models that could and probably should be scaled around the country. And the the scholars, the thinkers with the doers, they're on equal footing in this project. And that seems to me something very different than what I've seen from other public policy intellectual movements more recently. In other words, the reason we deliberately brought people together, some of them have recovered from predatory past. They were criminals in the past, but through God's grace, they've been redeemed. Some of them are single moms who started out in poverty and then went on to become university professors. I believe you convince people to embrace the values when you show them evidence that embracing the virtues and values of America will produce better people. 1776unites.com. 1776unites.com is the website. Bob Woodson is the visionary behind the project, founder and president of the Woodson Center. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show special edition of uh, Campus Beat. It's one thing to talk about the cost of college tuition and college textbooks, for that matter, all the costs associated with higher education. It's another thing to uh, also include the opportunity cost. Our friend over at uh, Carpe Diem blog, Mark Perry from the University of Michigan, uh, noted recently graphing the real increases, real price increases being adjusted for inflation over the last 20 years. Uh, among uh, a wide range of consumer goods and services as compared to rate uh, as compared to wages in the last 20 years average hourly wages have increased uh, just north of 80 percent college tuition and fees and textbooks have increased about 175 percent right so you understand now why we're talking about the college education being less and less affordable for middle-income families. By comparison, things where uh, the government is less involved, like cell phone services and clothing and household furnishings and toys and TVs, those have all become significantly more affordable during that same 20-year period. For example, cell phone real price declined by almost 50%. Toys by almost 80 percent. TVs by 100 percent. Just something to consider when you think about uh, whether or not the government being in the business of subsidizing particular goods and services versus allowing um, individuals in the marketplace to do so. How that turns out in terms of um, purchasing power for the average American, it's worth noting. But on the college tuition and fee prices, 
and the opportunity cost to be paid, the opportunity cost to be paid. We're pleased to be joined by T. Norman Van Cott, who is a professor of economics at Ball State University. Professor Van Cott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Well, you uh, wrote this piece for uh, fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education, that I, I enjoyed because it does a little quick back-of-the-envelope math uh, about uh, opportunity cost with respect to college education, starting with uh, the average student loan debt of $30,000 and uh, just exactly what you're paying in addition to accruing that debt in addition to having paid what you paid to get your uh, undergraduate degree. Now what you're foregoing as you pay off a loan rather than invest in a 401k for your retirement. And if you could just work through that math for us a little bit to give us a, a sense of it. Yes. With the average loan being $30,000, it can be repaid at a little over $300 a month in 10 years. And so what I did is I said, well, suppose you didn't have a student loan and you would invest that same amount in the stock market for those first 10 years instead of paying off a loan in 10 years. And then I came up with what that person would have at the end of the 10-year period and it's about $63,000. Then I compared that with what would happen for the student student who was repaying the loan. And that student who was repaying the loan would, I just assume, would not be investing that money for the first 10 years. If that student wanted to invest, he would have to wait 10 years. And so then I compared what the student who didn't repay would have at the end of 20 years compared to the student who had to, to delay repayment for 10 years and then start to invest. And so if you extend this out, I mean, you know, you sort of lay the premise there. If you extend this out over the of the course of a lifetime of work, the difference ends up, the difference between the uh, the person who started with 30 grand in, lo- in a college loan debt versus the person who started uh, making that $300 uh, contribution to their 401k rather than to paying off debt the difference over a lifetime of work turns out to be a million bucks, which is pretty consequential. Well, that, that's assuming that they both, at the end of 20 years, the student who didn't repay or didn't have to repay would have uh, $100,000 more than the repayer would. And then if you assume that you just let that stay in the market till they reach age 65, then the difference is almost, well, it's 900000 $900, plus. Right, and your and the article I said a million rounding up, effect. yeah, rounding up. But I mean, and then and you're talking about you know average market returns, uh, you know, going back to uh, the pre Great Depression. So uh, that you're not yes, yeah, it includes the Great Depression. It's, it's from 1929 on. So a uh, million dollars worth of difference, and this is important because you say, okay, well, um, you may decide that uh, getting a, a BA is uh, is worth it. But it's sort of the argument, know what you're know what you're paying, not just what you're paying up front, but what you're paying in terms of opportunity costs when factoring in what decision you should make. Oh yes. And in addition, another cost which is frequently not not measured is what the student in in four or five years of college could have earned yes. were they to have a job. And, and that's a significant amount of money too. And so the cost of going to college is really exceeds the cost of tuition and not room and board because you'd have room and board anyway but tuition and books but you're are, are you're not arguing against going to college at least i don't take that away from your piece 
you're just uh, you're arguing for consideration of what the costs and benefits are. Well, yes. One of the first principles of economics is that when you raise the cost of doing something, people do less of it. And uh, in that case, I, if students were fully informed of the cost, I suspect a number of students would would not opt for going to college. And then, but, may, uh, and maybe some of that uh, market adjustment would bring down the prices from the levels that I was just discussing before you joined us, where it's more than 2x uh, the rate at which wages have grown over the last 20 years. Yes, but uh, you got to remember colleges are not-for-profit operations. Not-for-profit operations just suck up money. Any money that comes this year will be treated as a cost of providing the service next year. Mm. And so colleges are always always pleading if they have budget troubles. Well, so what's the, so in that in that environment, what, what would you suggest is the adjustment to be made if you really want to reduce tuition prices? Is it uh, to remove federal and state subsidies to get federal government out of the loan business, put it back with private banks and remove state subsidies? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I would suggest. One thing, you know, Ronald Reagan said there's <laughs> government programs have a long life and it'd be very difficult to get the government out of that business. So it's really a, a sorry situation we've got ourselves into. Now, I realize that saying that there's no solution or the solution which is available is uh, not likely to be adopted is not a uh, way to accumulate interest in the, in the problem. But, uh, and incidentally, you know, if you wanted to uh, use different rates of return in the stock market, some people have said 10% is too high if you wanted to drop it to 7%. There are websites which enable you to do compound interest very easily. I mean, uh, it's just a matter of entering the amount invested each year yes. over those 10 years and, and then compounding it for 33 more years and 23 more years. And so anybody can, can do this do this exercise. I'm surprised that no one else has. Yes, uh, um, this this elusive Econ 101 concept called opportunity cost and, uh, and frankly, another one called compound interest. Uh, a lot, of people, yes, in gov- a lot of people in government don't get that on the public sector pension side either. Uh, T. Norman, uh, uh, T. Norman Van Kopp, professor of economics at Ball State University, uh, author of this piece at uh, fee.org on uh, the opportunity cost of student loans and going to college. Professor Van Cott, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank thank you for calling me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, we talked about some local business uh, Seattle City Council Land Use Committee a little bit earlier in the show. You know, there's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Uh, that's a little bit of an earworm, obviously. It stuck with me. Uh, also, Georgetown, Texas, <laughs> Mayor Dale Ross uh, presiding, a city council meeting there in that community. And apparently uh, Dale Ross is a big fan of the Naked Gun movies um, because he pulled a uh, – Lieutenant Frank Drebin at a a recent council meeting where he uh, turned over to uh, one of the council members, turned over the microphone to uh, allow her to make some comments on a particular matter they were addressing while he uh, went to relieve himself. 
slight problem if you know the naked gun storyline. Thank you, Mayor. I'll try and keep this brief. Um, I won't belabor all the details. I'm sure most of you remember Mr. Guest's presentation from last time, and I imagine he's going to hit some of the highlights here in a minute. But the thing is that these deadly infections, there's something we can do about it. And what we can do is call on represent, uh, governmental representatives uh, that are higher. It's disconcerting. Up the chain of. <laughs> and ask for action at the federal level. Um, I am. Um, Mayor aware of Mr. Brainerd's that. concerns that he raised last time, and there were there would be instances where I actually agree that we should take mm. action locally <laughs> first, but there are not any um, KFO operations in Georgetown, so for us to just say it within oh. the city limits. <laughs> <laughs> But disruptive. Why would you continue with the meeting? Why don't you just stop and have somebody go to the bathroom? But no. Would be an empty gesture. Um, so. And also these diseases. Don't know any boundaries. So a state by state approach would just mean sure, that. the. Right. Yeah, sure. You want to take that from the top? Uh, then the mayor comes back, and uh, you see on the video uh, uh, one of the council members leaning over to tell Mayor Ross uh, what had just transpired. Good grief. Um, hmm. Yeah. I, and, yes, it's scatological humor that turns us all into fifth graders. But who can resist? Who can resist the genius of the Zucker brothers? Uh, clearly not Dale Ross. The only good news in Georgetown, Texas, it wasn't a press conference about uh, security for the queen. Thank you, Your Honor. Protecting the safety of the Queen is a task that's gladly accepted by police squad. For no matter how silly the idea of having a Queen might be to us, <laughs> as Americans, we must be gracious and considerate folks. Uh, thank you, Lieutenant Drebin. Of course, we all have a stake in seeing that this portion of the Queen's American Goodwill Tour is completely and we can all take pride that the Queen has chosen our yeah. Yeah. Um, Indeed, it is for all the people who will be able to share in the uh, celebration, especially in the... A little song would have helped Dale Ross there the come along to... Dale Ross's comedic timing, pretty close to Leslie Nielsen. You're not going to get uh, that kind of uh, humor on too many conservative talk shows, three minutes, four minutes worth of uh, that. But look, with Leslie Nielsen passing on to his eternal reward, somebody has got to be tapped to uh, revive the Naked Gun franchise. And uh, hopefully the Zucker brothers are listening and they can be introduced to uh, to Dale Ross. 
uh, Georgetown, Texas. Now, here's a little bit of a test. Dale Ross or Leslie Nielsen, you be the judge. Very similar. Yeah. Typical. This is the Damn Prof Show, and I'm properly ashamed. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and listening to uh, elitists like uh, Michael Bloomberg, members of the Beltway Press Corps, talk about farming is like listening to them talk about guns. They have no idea what they're talking about. They uh, look down on it, don't understand it, don't care. And so uh, Bloomberg, and here we go again, another recently uncovered video of Bloomberg holding court, just as he did at Oxford, talking about the people who can, smart enough to be in this room, all the whole sort of liberal intelligentsia were the expert technocrats that should be in charge of governing people's lives for them, plus the Aspen Institute on stop and frisk, throwing black kids up against the wall and uh, patting them down to see if they have guns. That was tough talking Mike Bloomberg talking about stop and frisk then that he's apologizing for now. And so here we have yet another example. Michael Bloomberg, not exactly Paul Harvey-esque in talking about farming and farmers in this country. Even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300, you could learn that. Then, then um, you have 300 years of the industrial society. Uh, you put the piece of metal on the lathe, you turn the crank and the direction of the arrow, and you can have a job. And, and we created a lot of jobs. 1.98% of the world worked in, uh, in agriculture today. It's 2% in the United States. Uh, now comes the information economy. And the information economy is fundamentally different because it's built around replacing people with technology and the skill sets that you have to learn are how to think and analyze. And that is a whole degree level different. You have to have a different skill set. You have to have a lot more gray matter. Yeah, this is uh, Bloomberg again at Oxford, uh, the Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, here we go at the Oxford Business School. Basically, you're saying that um, anybody can be a farmer. It doesn't take much gray matter. And, um, well, anybody could be a, a, a factory worker, too, back in the day with uh, manual lathes as opposed to the digital lathes today. It doesn't take much gray matter either. But, uh, you know, to be a, a worker in the information age, the digital age, well, that requires a lot of gray matter, and uh, not everybody's going to be able to make it. Yeah, it turns out that uh, farming, and I'm not a farmer, no background in farming, 
But, you know, I'm interested enough to read. I, I'd say it makes sense to be interested enough in people that I know in Illinois, for example, where I live. The uh, Farm Bureau in our state suggests that each farmer is responsible for feeding 165 families. So somebody producing a product that has that much value to that many families, you know, you maybe take an interest in. You try and understand it a little bit, particularly when you're thinking about uh, public policy or, as Michael Bloomberg is clearly thinking about, his authoritarian impulses. Uh, in full blossom, industrial policy. And so if you learn a little bit about uh, farming and how much technology does go into business, and one of the reasons there's uh, so much discussion about uh, the distribution of broadband, the infrastructure building, so that there's broadband in rural areas, is precisely because of farming. You know, these big uh, pieces of farming equipment, they're actually quite technologically advanced. GPS and those sorts of things, you know, just as uh, modern technology improves the efficiency of uh, so many other industries, uh, farming and farmers take advantage of the same. Uh, It's similar to this uh, ridiculous piece by Vox.com's Aaron Rupar. And these are part and parcel of the same same, uh, glass house. Aaron Rupar over at Vox.com, elitist left-wing rag, Michael Bloomberg, elitist left-wing politician. Uh, you know, despite, you know, running as a Republican for mayor of New York, that's only because he couldn't get the nomination through the Democrat Party. So, you know, I wouldn't make much of that. He, uh, Rupar at Vox.com, suggested that uh, Trump talking about uh, uh, farmers needing to connect to the Internet was, you know, idiotic, like like Trump is the dum-dum. Uh, Trump talks in a in a video while in Iowa about uh, tractors and Internet kind of farmers with tractors and the need for Internet connectivity. Uh, He uh, he uh, uh, said in the moment, uh, Aaron Rupert Fox, OMG, how dumb is Trump? Uh huh. Well, uh, others have chimed in, including uh, Bonchi, who's a contributor at Red State. In fact, I can remember well over a decade ago going to an uncle's house and checking out some of the new equipment at his neighbor's farm. At the time, GPS was being used to ensure precision plowing and planting. Today, Internet connectivity and tractors at even smaller operations is becoming the norm to run all kinds of new features to keep things moving smoothly. The lack of broadband and wireless connectivity in the areas where some of these farms are is a real problem and hurts efficiency. So... In point of fact, Trump probably actually talking to real farmers and the representatives at farm bureaus and the like understands something that Aaron Rupar didn't even take the time to understand, much like Bloomberg doesn't take the time to understand because they don't give a rat's ass about farmers and farming. What does that have to do with uh, living in Midtown? What does that have to do with living in the power center in D.C.? That's not my life, so why should I be interested? Those are the lives lived by so many deplorables, right? So they're useful as mascots, farmers, when they're being hurt by ag tariffs as China and the U.S. were going back and forth with the trade wars. Then they're useful to the uh, coastal media outlets. But uh, when their uh, utility as a mascot ends, so does the interest, and there was never any accrual of knowledge so that you can actually speak intelligently on these topics rather than expose yourself as the moron you are, Bloomberg or Aaron Rupar. But again, I appreciate that they do. 
appreciate that they do. It tells you again who they are, and you should believe them. I mean, just like with the Avenatti matter we spoke about earlier in the show. Tell me again why I should treat any of these people. And I'd be specific. I don't categorize them all together, but so many of the gang of 500, and we'll just go name after name after name, as why I should give them, uh, ascribe to them any credibility. I shouldn't. I'll tell you what, Peggy Noonan had this piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend about why Bloomberg could pull it off. And she talks about him as a, a friend, an admiring friend. We've sparred a bit on national issues. We don't share the same stands or even worldview. Uh, and her belief that he could pull this off isn't ri- written out of affection or regard. It's what she's seeing. Well, you know, Peggy gets a little bit uh, thick in her bubble, too. So she may not be seeing what Bloomberg and Aaron Rupar may not be seeing. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So on Sunday, President Trump with Melania in tow, was the Grand Marshal of the Daytona 500. And uh, before uh, offering uh, the uh, ceremonial duties, President Trump and Melania uh, addressed the crowd, warmly received, talked a little bit about uh, this country and uh, recognized military, particularly Gold Star families. But NASCAR fans never forget that no matter who wins the race, what matters most is God family and country joining us today are gold star families whose loved ones made the supreme sacrifice to defend our freedom and our flag to edgar and jennifer bill george lutz and gold star families everywhere throughout our land your fallen warriors will live in our hearts forever thank you and then it was time to uh, kick off the festivities NASCAR fans, to welcome back your United States Air Force Thunderbirds and to deliver the most famous words in motorsports at the Daytona 500. Please welcome this year's Grand Marshal, the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump, accompanied by First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump. Daytona International Speedway, we love our country, and it's truly an honor to be with all of you at the great American race. Gentlemen, start your engines. Yeah. And, you know, just seeing Trump in that element at Daytona 500 with the NASCAR fans and uh, restating God, family, country, this is who we are as Americans, uh, recognizing military and Gold Star families in particular. It it goes back to something uh, we heard a little bit earlier in the show from uh, Dr. Carolyn Borsenko. She's the... 20-year Democrat who, after attending a Trump rally in New Hampshire, moved her registration to independent because uh, Trump isn't because even if you, as she said, even Trump supporters who she spoke with talk her perspective, not my perspective. 
her perspective as a Democrat, her perspective as someone who had great trepidations about Trump and his supporters. There's a lot of disagreement about Trump supporters, or disagreement within Trump supporters about certain things Trump does, whether it's a particular policy choice or a particular word choice on Twitter. But he's not embarrassed by his supporters and he has their backs. That's the feeling you get from Trump. And that's the feeling his supporters convey about why they stick with Trump. It's been generally good for them. And good for America, his tenure as president on a range of matters, not just economic vitality, but a range of matters consistent with their values. And also, even though you, sometimes you don't like everything he says or does, he's got our back. That's a powerful feeling. And it explains the energy at Daytona 500 yesterday and the energy at those Trump rallies that Dr. Borshenko attended to. It is revealing. And it's important. Thank you for joining us on this installment of the Dan Prof Show. Join us again tomorrow night. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.